0: Welcome to the Beyond Mining podcast series. This podcast series was recorded from a number of talks, panel discussions and workshops held between the 22nd and 29th of November 2020 at the Beyond Mining counter conference. This counter conference was organized by Blockade IMARC. Blockade iMark is made up of an alliance of organizations that has been protesting the International Mining and Resources Conference held annually in so called Melbourne, Australia, on unceded Orundry and Boomerang country. You can find out more information about Blockade iMark and the Beyond Mining podcast series at blockadeimark.com. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy your podcast.
1: Go for it. (laughs) All right. Uh, So just a quick start by um, acknowledging, I think I'll do that first, that we're on uh, the lands of various Indigenous peoples. And I would like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nations, who are the traditional custodians of the country that I'm on. And um, thank them and their ancestors, elders, past, present, and future for their care of the land. Which is why we're still here, alive, eating, drinking, enjoying air, all those things. Quite useful stuff if you want to have a workshop on capitalism. So my name is Ian Paradis. Um, oh, yeah, there's something else. You might want to put the name of your local uh, country in the, in the name of your Zoom person name. I've seen that done before. That was Andy's idea. Um, so do that if you want. Or just in the chat. Just acknowledge whatever you like. So my name is Ian Paradis and I am a Wakaia man. Um, so my mob are from up in the Gulf country. I live now in the Greater Melbourne area, near Healesville, and uh, also am a professor of race relations at Deakin University, and yeah, do a bit of work on decolonisation, indigenisation, those sort of things. I'm not an expert on capitalism by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm interested in the topic, and it intersects with my other work on colonialism and uh, that sort of stuff. Now over to Annie for some more action.
2: Awesome. Um, thanks so much, Ian. Um, and yeah, we'll get into a bit more about capitalism and colonization and all of that later on. Um, and I'll start by sharing our slides, um, to give you a little bit of an idea, about what we're gonna try and do in this workshop, um, which is a lot. Um, So I, yeah, I'm very excited that you've all come along um, to this Capitalism 101 kind of experiment workshop where we've done a bit of a call out to see what people wanna learn about and what people think is important. And we're gonna see how much we can fit in To the next hour and a half. Um, So I would really appreciate it if people, while you're in this workshop, um, yeah, if you write down any questions you have or clarification and thinking about um, what else could be in this workshop and how it could be done better, because I'm, yeah, I'm particularly interested in how to keep running these sorts of workshops, because understanding capitalism, I think, is really, really key to beating it. yeah, and I guess a little introduction of me. Um, yeah, my name is Anissa. Um, I live on Rundori Willem Country in so-called Melbourne. Um, I'm a bit of a history and economics nerd, which I do alongside um, kind of blockading direct action activism. Um, and I used the coronavirus lockdown to read a lot about capitalism, (laughs) which is what got me really excited to try and run a workshop on it. But um, yeah, I am nowhere near an expert and looking at capitalism, I kind of question whether there is any experts because there's so many different opinions and so much to understand. Um, So yeah, so what we're going to try and do in this workshop is we'll go through a few different definitions. I always find it useful to start with definitions. Um, And then the lovely Noon is going to take us through some entry-level Marxist ideas, um, which really, yeah, a a lot of kind of leftist understanding of capitalism is rooted in what Marx said. So it's really good to have some understanding about that. Um, Then we'll have a bit of a chance to think about how each of us relate to capitalism and then we'll discuss a little bit about where capitalism came from, how it interacts with colonization and where it's at today. Um, We'll get excited for alternatives and then at the end hopefully there'll be some time to talk about what next. Um, And yeah, so there will be, we've tried to make it as interactive as possible Um, and given that there's, yeah, there's 22 people, which is quite a lot for discussions. So we'll be doing quite a bit of breakout rooms um, to kind of make sure that people have enough time to speak. So hopefully that works out well. Um, and so yeah, while we're d- discussing with things with people, it's just good to remember to make sure that everyone has a chance to speak um, and be respectful in those conversations um and so to start that off i'll just jump out of the screen share um i will chuck us into breakout rooms because i mean i would personally love to hear um who you all are and what you want to learn about well why you want to learn about capitalism but that's not going to be possible so in the time that we have so i'm going to chuck people into breakout rooms of about five people. Um, And if you don't want to be in a breakout room, feel free to send me a message or shout out here now. Um, It's all very optional. Um, But when you go into the breakout rooms, if you could, yeah, we'll be in there for maybe about 10 minutes. So that's kind of two minutes each. And if you have a chance to say, um, Yeah, your name, if you have a preferred pronoun, um, where you're calling in from and yeah, why you are interested in capitalism. Um, And if there's at least one person in each group that wants to kind of collate that information um, on these slides, they're actually Google slides. And so you'll be able to, I'll share the link in the chat right now and if people want to click on that, then you'll be able to edit um, the, th- the third slide. Um, so, are people ready? Does that sound good? Thumbs up. Um, so, we're going to start with a few definitions, which will hopefully bring some clarity, but also some confusion, because that's what it's done to me while I've been looking up definitions. Um, So, this is just your standard dictionary definition. Um, An economic system characterized by private or corporate ownership of capital goods, by investments that are determined by private decisions and prices, production, and the distribution of goods that are determined mainly by competition in a free market. Um, So, yeah, that's... A lot of this we'll see through a lot of the definitions, um, but private property and private decisions and private investments um, is a huge part of capitalism. Um, and yeah, the, the competition of what, what they call a free market, um, which I think a lot of people in this zoom would disagree that it's actually free, but, but by that they mean free, from government intervention and free, um, and free from kind of social obligation. Um, and down here, yeah, there's a picture of a market. And part of that is just to kind of remind people that markets have existed for a lot longer than capitalism. So capitalism's only about 500 years old-ish, um, but markets have been around for a lot longer and so has money, um, but just in a different way. Um, And yeah, and feel free to chuck comments and questions into the chat. Um, I really love it when people have their own conversations within the chat. And also feel free to disagree because um, all these definitions are quite contentious. Um, So this is Eric Olin-Wright, who's a pretty awesome academic, um, who describes capitalism as a class structure characterized by private property. Um, where most people are wage laborers, which means that they, yeah, they sell their their time to get money, and that the economic coordination happens largely through a decentralized market, which basically means that, yeah, it's not centralized in the way that a state, um, a central state, is making all the decisions. Um, here's a pro-capitalist definition, so people might have heard of Milton Friedman. Um, and he describes capitalism and especially for him, the free market is really, really important. So he describes it as voluntary cooperation of individuals, um, which is the technique of the marketplace. Um, And for him, the government only has three functions in (coughs) capitalism. It should be for the military defense of the nation, um, enforce contracts between individuals, and protect citizens from crimes against themselves or their property. Um, And so he and many of the kind of pro-capitalist, pro-free market people think that the the government intervening with the market is actually where all of the problems come from Um, (laughs) rather than um, problems coming from other structures of oppression. They, they like to blame the government for everything. And um, you've probably all seen that. Um, here's a couple of definitions from people you may know. <laughs> um, so JAM describes capitalism, an economic system that uses private property and a privately waged workforce to create private profit, profit to gain more private property. So it's this kind of accumulation um, method. And then Noon, who we'll hear from soon, talks about capitalism as a mode of production built on two fundamental social relations, the commodity and wage labour. But Noon will explain more about that later. Um, And yay. Good on you people in the chat. Something I wanted to touch on as well while we're going through definitions is that private property is really fundamental to capitalism. It can't, um, and you'll see in the history of capitalism kind of right at the start when it was getting developed and getting started um, in Britain, that was when kind of theories of private property were really changing. So private property has obviously kind of existed forever in terms of I have my stuff or the king has their stuff. Um, and that's private in a sense. But what capitalism really brought about was private property as exclusion. And so, um, as Yin will go into a bit later, all of a sudden, the the Lord's lands um, and the commons, people could actually be excluded from them, um, rather than kind of people having just an understanding that people, like most humans have over human history, that people have shared access to the things that they need to survive. Um, and so if the, are there are any philosophy nerds or maybe people learned about John Locke at school, um, but his theories of homesteading, in which human beings claim ownership through mixing their labour with unclaimed r- r- resources, that really kind of took on its own life I- in this time and was really kind of important in British colonisation, where um, yeah, the kind of racist mentality saw that, you know, Indigenous peoples in in different places and also peasants in England and Ireland weren't actually, um, yeah, mixing their lands, um, like, productively enough to be able to claim the land. So, therefore, somebody that claimed to be able to mix their labor more productively could take the land and that's where they get private property. Um, And yeah, as I said before, there were markets and private property before capitalism. It's just interesting to see how they've changed when that um, begins. Um, Does anyone want to make any comments on that? Um, I know everyone's making comments in the um chat but if anyone has yeah really something that they want to add or a question on that feel free to jump in
1: maybe um to sort of reiterate how violent the the process of the creation of private property was like it wasn't just this kind of that's the 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 trajectory of capitalism that we're fed is this idea of this sort of smooth you know beautiful transition towards, you know, human peak civilization, but really it was this gigantically violent process that um, slaughtered peasants and kicked them off the land and forced the other ones into like destitution.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Look, I'd add to that if I've got a moment. Um, The other side of it too is the destruction of women in traditional communal societies. Um, Generally women placed roles of care, support, networking and um birthing health and the witch hunts um which resulted around their earlier period of enclosure where they closed off the commons was essentially about kind of forcing capitalist relations um upon everybody and was you know a big part of the kind of religious kind of crusades that then led to capitalism as i understand it there's a woman uh, author sylvia federici um italian marxist uh feminist um, who did a lot of work on this. Her book, Caliban and the Witch, is a must read for really understanding how the destruction of women's power um, was essential for the creation of capitalism. Um,
2: yeah, people might have seen one of the suggested readings we gave for this was a um, book a book club recording on that book, which is absolutely epic. Um, so we'll definitely include that to send it out to you all afterwards. Um, But I think maybe I'll hand over to Noon now to take us through some, um, yeah, Marxism 101 kind of stuff. And yes, people, please keep chucking resources into the chat. This is wonderful. Okay. Do you you want me to share the screen, Noon? Yes, please. Soon,
0: speak for the salute. Hi hey everyone, thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Noon, and I'm uh, also on unceded Wurundjeri land, which is where I live, um, so just want to acknowledge that as well. Um, I am an ex-climate activist, I did stuff with Quit Coal and Friends of the Earth and Lock the Gate and Fossil Free, um, and then uh, got real bad mental health uh, and decided I hate work uh, and wanted to study or like learn about the philosophy of economics and politics. Um, I did my undergrad in philosophy, but I'm not like an expert in this stuff or whatever. I'm just an enthusiastic amateur. So I'm sure people who know more about this stuff will be like, hey, that's not true. Uh, Please note, I'm not an archaeologist. So especially any like historical claims um, that that might be tenuous or, you know, I'm I'm acknowledging in advance. This is a, I'm doing broad brushstrokes for a general idea. Um, and If you want to find more of me, you can find me at Ospol Snackpod, which is my weekly uh, news comedy podcast. We do Australian news and memes and uh, i 've got a meme page as well anyway that 's not, not here nor there. So say this is entry level Marxism. Uh, you might know much more about bits of this than me. Um, please correct me later or like ask me questions or whatever so We're all here because, well, I mean, I'm here because capitalism sucks. Uh, We're all here to know what it is. But I think in order to answer that, we need to take a step back and ask what kind of thing is it? Um, Because that is sort of a big question in and of itself before we even get to the details. Um, And the jargony answer is it's a mode of production. Um, So what is a mode of production? Well, it's an arrangement of people and things that leads to stuff getting made or produced. Um, and so ones that you might have heard of are things like capitalism, feudalism, uh, hunter-gatherer society, which might be hidden under your uh, your faces over there, uh, Corvy slavery, there's a bunch of debate about what exactly counts or wh- what historical ones were, but these are some ones you've probably heard of. So I want to drill into this idea a little bit more of people and things. Um, so the things, aka the famous means of production, this is basically everything that anyone Users to make anything at all, or to do to produce any kind of value. So, the, like the classic example is I don't know, like machines in a factory, uh, or you know any other kind of tools, hammers, saws, maybe um, uh, bone needles or fishing hooks, whatever. Debatably, land also counts because people work the land and get value from it. Debatably, animals like pack animals or ones pulling plows or whatever. And then stock things that you use to make stuff. So like iron that you turn into cars or coffee beans, you turn into coffee, so on and so forth. So these are all the things, the means of production. And then on the other side, there's the people. So how do the people relate to these bits of equipment and objects and so on? And there's lots of different ways of thinking about this. Uh, one is about sort division of labor. So I don't know how to gather a society like who hunted or who gathered and like probably actually there wasn't that much of a distinction, but again, it's, neither, it's not an archeologist. Um, and uh, another common way of thinking about it is class. Um, so a class uh, in the Marxist sense, like the, the working class or whatever, it's a group of people who all have the same type of relationship to the means of production. Um, So, we'll we'll get into some more specifics about that in a bit. But basically, people and things. So, here's my helpful diagram, Um, maybe it's not actually all that helpful, but somehow I feel like imagining it visually just helps me. There's there's the means of production, the things, and the relations of production, and the people, and together they're organized into a mode of production. Again, I'm I'm sorry about all the jargon, I've tried to keep it to a minimum. Uh, And look, as a side note, we live in a society um, and obviously the world is more than just the economy and the economy is more than just production. There's lots of things about how stuff is moved around and distributed and consumed and things like what music we listen to. Uh, it's not obvious that that's determined by like how people produce things. Um, there's this whole field that oops, right wingers sometimes might call cultural Marxism. Um, but like basically people who have tried to work out aspects of how society in general relates to the economic base as this idea of base and superstructure. I'm not going to get into that. I just wanted to acknowledge it's a complicated thing. um, And that there's resources on that that um, you can ask me about if you're interested or find yourself. Um, I haven't got any like super long Marx quotes or anything in here. I've tried to keep to a minimum, but this is one that I find really important. And actually, um, in our breakout room, Yin said something that I thought expressed this much more clearly than Marx did about the way that um, the ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch, the ruling ideas. That is the class, which is the ruling material force is the same time it's ruling intellectual force. And so basically what this means is that like the people who control the economy in whatever way, who, who determine how society is organized economically also produce the ideas that are common to society. And I just want to give some examples of this that you might relate to. You should avoid eating avocado if you ever want to uh, own a house. Um, Joining Union is a waste of money, just buy a a PS5. Um, If you have a go, you'll get a go, and you'll be sexier if you drink this band of chocolate milk. Um, And so these are all like capitalist ideas that that sort of in the background everyone kind of believes to some extent. That's right. Chocolate milk is a much more cost-effective way of getting sexy. Anyway, I just wanted to acknowledge that there's this like sort of cultural and psychological aspect to the mode of production as well. Um, But I'm not really going to talk about that. So how do modes of production change? And I promise I'm going to get to capitalism, um, but I want to sort of talk about what it is. Now we're going to talk about how they change, and then I'll try and explain what capitalism is. Uh, And this is important because like once there was feudalism, now there's capitalism, what happened? Um, and also, you know, now there's capitalism, hopefully there'll be something else soon. Uh, how might that happen? And the jargony answer, again, I'm really sorry, is that the mode of production changes when the means become too powerful for the relations to manage. Um, I've written that out in slightly more words there, but the capital bits are important. Means are too powerful for the relations. Okay, and so now, where did capitalism come from, according to capitalists? Um, uh, So, you know, on the vertical axis, this is just a, a, a diagram I put together, it's not very technical, but like, you know, back in the olden times, there wasn't really any technology, and then at some point, people invented armor, I guess, and swords and things, and then now we have the iPhone, and it's just been this kind of like, steady, linear progress. Okay, maybe that's a bit of a straw man... Uh, but only a little bit. Here's one that's slightly less of a straw man. Um, so uh, buying and selling things, the capitalist idea goes, thank you, James. I'm glad you like it. Um, buying and selling things for profit is human nature. It's just what humans do. Capitalism was a natural growth out of previous systems. As Anissa said, markets and money always existed. And this is just people have sort of discovered you know, hard work makes you rich, and then, and then they discovered once they got rich enough that actually the people in charge didn't, weren't interested in freedom, um, they just, the king and the, the pope, they just wanted to be in charge and they don't care about freedom and hard work, so we had the only revolution that will ever be necessary, and we invented parliament, which is the perfect form of government. Um, and now everyone gets a say in how society's run, everyone's free, everyone has a job, No one's starving. Right. I did say it's slightly less of a straw man. Um, But the Marxist theory, um, sorry, not always existed. Thanks, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's an important clarification, but for some time. Yeah, yeah. Longer than capitalism. Um, So this is the Marxist view. Again, this is a rough graph that I made in MS Paint. So, you know, I'm not trying to be super technical here, but roughly the idea is that um, we have these stages that are separated by periods of like sharper development or growth. Um, So there's these stable periods, which are called modes of production. And I've just put like these ones, it's debatable whether or not these are accurate, as I mentioned, there's a lot of archaeological dispute about this, but just pretend. Um, So these are the modes of production. There's a little bit of growth during this. You know, people might work harder or whatever, but basically things are arranged the same. And then there's intermittent moments of revolution, right? So these bits where the means become too powerful for the social relations to efficiently organize. Um, And so then there's this sort of, oops, sorry. There's this rupture moment. um, There's a revolution. Some new people are in charge. And then we have this new mode of production going forward for some time. Uh, many, though not all, Marxists believe, and also claim that Marx believed that violent revolution is the only way to change a mode of production. I personally think that seems unlikely, uh, but there's arguments for it. Whatever. Not really going to talk about violent revolution a whole lot. Um, so now we want to talk about the end of feudalism. and And so feudalism was arguably the mode of production prior to capitalism, Uh, I deleted a couple slides here, but it it ran roughly from like 800 AD to 1600 AD in Europe. Um, There were other systems elsewhere around the world, very notably in China, but also like just in a real lot of places. And I want to acknowledge that like my personal knowledge and study, and also more broadly, like Marxist theory is very Eurocentric. And that's a really big flaw that, um, you know, we should all be aware of. And and um, my apologies for other parts of the world that I haven't um, sort of represented appropriately here. And, and there's more information about that elsewhere. So anyway, the end of feudalism, um, the, the classic Marxist theory goes, comes because we have this new me- uh, means of production, which was sort of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and uh, I'll get into it. The timeline here is a bit debatable, but um, basically the, the industrial revolution includes the spinning jenny, which was an automated weaving machine, the steam engine, which was initially used to pump water out of mines, but then for everything else, telegraph, mass printed newspapers. Um, and so the social relations also changed as a result of these means of production changing. And so there's this class called the burgers. And so this literally means like city people, something like that. Um, Berg is in the German word like Hamburg, for example, just means city. So burgers are city people. And they started becoming wealthy by investing. Um, And there's the whole detailed story here, but like roughly they morph into what we now call the bourgeoisie. And the French word bourgeoisie is just literally the same word as the German word burgers. It means city people. Uh, But Marx uses Burgers to refer to these sort of like artisans and handcrafters of feudalism and the bourgeoisie as the capitalists. Um, and Anissa wanted me to, oh, she pointed out to me and I, I decided to mention that there's dispute about whether or not we should say the bourgeoisie and capitalists are synonymous. Um, there's this book, The Origins of Capitalism by uh, Ellen mason Wood um, that disputes that. Um, I'm under the impression that Marx uses the term synonymously, which doesn't mean that we should, but anyway, there's, just something to keep in mind, and debatably, there was also an intermediate period between feudalism and capitalism called mercantilism. And there's, there's other ideas here. And um, as I say, the timeline doesn't work if the industrial revolution's the only thing that changed, because like uh, the pillage of South America and all, all of these other things happened before that. Um, maybe Yin might talk about that a bit more later. Again, not an archaeologist, trying to give you the broad theoretical outlines here. Okay, so. The burghers have become rich, they're the bourgeoisie now. Uh, the old feudal relations don't work anymore. They don't want to have to bow to the king and whatever, whatever. So they have violent revolutions. And usually the British Revolution is uh, identified as the first one. It's also the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and, and like dozens more. Um, yep. And so what did these so-called bourgeois revolutions do? Um, they abolished the feudal social relations. So fiefdom which is the system of like kings and then barons and dukes and counts and whatever where everyone like sort of owns a piece of land Um, and serfdom which is a situation where um, humans are considered property that's part of that land so the the baron owns the entire barony and he owns all of the humans that live there and they have to work and give him uh, you know wheat and pigs or whatever Um, so they abolished fiefdom and serfdom and they did this through a process of Proletarianization, and um, uh, I've forgotten who it was who just spoke before, but um, mentioned about um, the pillage of South America and about the enclosure of the commons. So it sounds like people kind of might have a pretty good idea about this sort of process. Um, but basically, they turned the the serf working class into a, a proletariat working class, and. Um, a little bit more on that in a sec, they're not, not heaps. They invented this new form of government, the parliament, also known as representative democracy, which has been instituted differently in different times, and sort of arguably the nation state Uh, They invented a new legal framework um, called human rights or liberalism. Uh, Again, there's a lot written about that. And they did many other things, obviously, including like turn our entire world into a money-based thing where the only way that we can relate to other people is through purchases. Um, Though I'm not sure that was exactly the plan when they first started in like 1500 or whatever, but like that's how it's ended up. Uh, Okay, so now here we are finally in capitalism. I'm going to try and explain what capitalism is through this framework that I've just tried to show you. So on the one hand, there's the means of production. And again, this is just everything that we work with. And so factories, tractors, ocean liners, recycling plants, kitchens in bars, uh, computers that you use at your office, anything that you use to do productive labor, that is means of production. Um, You could probably point out something on your desk and that might be a mean of production. Um, And the relations... uh, is a bit complicated, and this is something that Anissa mentioned in my definition up top, um, and this is kind of the meaty bit as far as I'm concerned, which is unfortunate, I'm only going to spend like one slide on it, but um, uh, basically the way that capitalism social relations work is that there's the ruling class, uh, who are the bourgeoisie or the capitalists, depending on how you feel about that issue, and they own the means of production. So think about this, like I worked as a barista, um, my boss owned the cafe, but rarely came in, right, and so I was the working class, uh, I sold my labor to my boss, and I operated the means of production, right, so I was there making coffees on the coffee machine, it was his machine, he owns it, but I was working on it, so I'm sure all of you can, like, imagine how that relates to your own history with employment, or not, or whatever, but, or, or people that you know, um, and so the, yeah, they, the, the working class and the ruling class relate to each other through this thing called wage labor, And again, it sounds like probably most people are familiar with that term, but um, it's important to remember there's two sides to this, proletarians sell their labor and capitalists buy it. Um, And this in turn, wage labor, is based on the commodity, um, which uh, from my point of view feels less important, right? Like wage labor is how I experience the injustice of capitalism, most commonly. Um, And the commodity sort of seems like unimportant, right? It's like, oh, I can buy a Mars bar or whatever, like that doesn't seem oppressive necessarily in the same way. Um, But Marx argues that the commodity is actually sort of conceptually comes before wage labor, because um, labor has become a commodity. And in a sense, the worker has also become a commodity. So um, that's why the first Chapter of Marx's book, *Das Kapital*. *Capital* is um, all about the commodity. It's not very exciting. Can't recommend it as a thrilling read, but it's a lot of information there. So uh, I'm nearly finished, and it's been a lot of talking. Um, but I just wanted to touch on this issue of surplus labor value, and the entire point of the relations of production, of having the wage labor system and of owning the means of production. All this stuff is so that the ruling class can get profit, right? Uh, And profit is sort of a modern capitalist term that's roughly equivalent to surplus labor value, which is the Marxist jargony term. And I'm just gonna say profit because it's easier to think about. It's not necessarily historically super accurate. Oh, see you Mike, thanks for coming in. I'm I'm sorry, I've gone on so long. Um, Thanks for dropping in. Okay, so uh, the relations are there for the ruling class to take this profit from the workers. And just briefly, the way that this works is that the the laborers are paid the same amount no matter how much value they create. And so again, when I was a barista, some hours I'd make 10 coffees, say I sell them all for $40. Another hour I'd make 50 coffees, sell them all for $4, that's $200. I got paid $16.50 the same amount for each hour and my boss pocketed the difference. And again, I'm sure all of you know what that's like. Um, But the interesting thing about this, the sort of subtle kind of, um, metaphysical thing is that the value, right, appears to be in the coffee and I'm selling my labor, which is kind of this own independent thing. And then my boss owns that coffee. And so when it gets sold, the boss gets the the difference. Um, I'm not really involved in the commodity anymore in the, in the coffee. Um, again, this is a really like complex thing. Marx wrote a whole like three huge volumes about it. Um, so that there's definitely more about that. Uh, But this brings us up to the current day. Uh, I just want to sit on floor all day, but our society say I got to make strangers rich so I can sit on floor some of the day. Uh, And I think that's really, you know, one of the key injustices um, that I imagine has brought a lot of people here today to wonder what's up with capitalism. And so before I finish, I just want to really quickly talk about the like orthodox Marxist and specifically Leninist view about what's going to happen after capitalism. And I just want to say I don't wholeheartedly endorse this plan. It's just one idea because I'm doing this entry-level Marxism thing. This is the entry-level Marxist-like game plan. Uh, so what's going to happen is the proletariat will realize they're victims of capitalism, uh, destroying, their surpl- uh, destroying their bodies and our minds and souls. Uh, we'll have a revolution and institute a new mode of production, which will be called socialism. Um, I'm sure you've all heard of this. Uh, And so this will still be a class society, but now instead of the ruling class being the capitalists, it'll be the working class, the proletariat, and the relations of production will be different. This is the famous workers own the means of production thing. Again, probably a slogan many of you have heard. Oops, oops. Uh, That's an interesting question, Jeremiah. Um, I do have some answers to that, but um, I might Try and wrap up. Um, But, uh, and then after socialism, uh, so uh, socialism will, um, uh, so the theory goes, uh, lead to class differences disappearing. And with it, the state will, quote, wither away. And then we'll have communism. And what is communism? No one knows. No one likes talking about it. Everyone likes to be a bit coy and, like, oh, we, we daren't guess what. Wonders, beauties there might be, Um, but a a common definition is a stateless, classless, moneyless society, which sounds pretty good to me, but don't worry everyone, we'll probably all die in the climate hellscape before we have to worry about any of that. So there you go, that's my entry-level explanation of uh, what is capitalism. It's a mode of production, Um, it's got some key social relations, uh, and it kind of sucks. That's it. Thanks. Anissa, do you want to take back control?
2: Yes. Yeah. Hooray. Thank you so much, Noon. Um, especially for those memes. That was great. Um, and yeah, maybe we'll I just, just... have
0: to cut a couple of memes for time. I'm really sorry.
2: <laughs> we can include them in the um, email out afterwards. Because <laughs> I think that's... A good way to relate um i thought yeah maybe i'm not sure if because this is a capitalism 101 session if anybody has any kind of questions out of that of like but i didn't understand this bit maybe we can just have a little bit of space for noon or someone else to answer um i know a lot of you are probably thinking of lots of really complicated questions um which we're going to have to wait for 102 when you all come back and we go deeper into it um but
0: i can potentially also answer questions later if if people want or like point people to books later on at the end of the workshop i'm not gonna rush off um and you can also contact me maybe i'll put emails or something in yeah um also uh, my apologies i know i speak very fast so hopefully it was intelligible
2: (laughs) when we do the recording we can slow it down um Awesome. Cool. Okay. Well, we'll give you all a bit of a chance to speak again now. Um, And what we were going to do is get you back into the breakout rooms. Um, And it'd be really awesome if people wanted to talk a little bit about how you relate to capitalism and especially the class society. And I guess I'll just share the screen again. Um here's, here's our kind of um, breakout talking points, um, and then once we come out of the breakout, we'll hear from Yin for a bit, um, but for the moment, yeah, just uh, um, after hearing all that from Noon um, about the exploitation and how capitalism's come into being, and also, yeah, these idea of different classes. So, um, yeah, Noon talked about bourgeoisie and proletariat, which I feel like I can never pronounce properly. Sometimes people call them kind of owning class, middle class, working class, raised poor. Um, so yeah, a lot of us experience a mixture of many of these classes combined with experiences of racism and gender oppression and many other oppressions, which intersect a lot with the oppressions of capitalism. Um, and sorry, we've just got an alarm going off here. Um, and so, yeah, basically what I find really useful is that it's important for us to think about that it's no, it's none of our fault what family we were born into and discussing our, our own experiences of our families and our upbringings and our experiences of oppression, both as oppressed, but also when we've been doing the oppressing Um um, Like, talking about that is really important to help us understand ourselves, our behaviours, our emotions and each other, and then that can be a really good tool for us to take responsibility for getting rid of these injustices, because it's not our fault who we are, um, but we definitely have a responsibility given whatever position we have in, in the world to try and make this world less oppressive. Um, So, what we're going to do is we're going to go back into breakout rooms and it'd be really good if people want to take um, a few minutes each to talk about your upbringing as much as you're um, comfortable with, um, kind of in terms of class, and kind of give you an opportunity to think about that. Um, You know, for example, me, you know, I was born into a middle class family, but now I'm technically working class, working in disability support. Um, And I've been going through my family ancestry and working out, most of them were um, oppressed working class Cornish miners that um, were getting screwed over by capitalism back in Cornwall and had to move out here. Um, So, yeah, it'd be amazing if people wanted to share a bit of that kind of taking in turns, making sure that everyone has a chance to, to share. But also, if you have kind of questions about what Noon's talking about, feel free to talk about that in your breakout rooms or whatever really feels important to you. Um, so once again, yeah, if you don't want to be in a breakout room, then you don't have to be, and just don't, um, jump in, but if you do want to, then, um, we'll go back into the breakout room. So we are back recording.
1: Yeah. Thanks. We are only out of time now.
2: Yeah, I know. I mean, <laughs> do people mind if we go over a bit, I guess. Um, Some people
1: might be okay with that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oops, that's not what I wanted to press. Sorry. Present. Um, and I've given you control of my mouse.
1: Oh, cool. So do I click the slides or you click the slides here? Yeah? All right. So just want to talk about colonialism and capitalism a little bit. So um, this is a, a slightly... Uh, I a similar view to what Noon presented, but maybe slightly different, different emphasis. So in my view, capitalism arose in the 16th century from about 1500 onwards through both the enclosure movement, which was about taking all the land of the peasants that they'd used for subsistence for many centuries, and also stealing all the land around the world through colonisation. So this created people who were alienated from the means of production. And it would lead to the concept of landlords and tenants Owners and workers, and then we had the. As as Noon was saying, the timelines don't exactly match. So from after that, we had the Industrial Revolution and urbanisation and wage slavery and poverty. But the Industrial Revolution was not the cause of that; it was an effect. Um, But of course, it's not so simple as cause and effect. They're all circular and interrelated and and overlapping. So, yeah, um, colonisation uh, also led to the formation of the first company. Companies are extremely important in capitalism. That was the Dutch East India company, uh, which, were, which um, operated around, particularly in Southeast Asia and Indonesia. And they created a stock market, um, a trading concern uh, in Amsterdam to um, do all the things that stock markets do. And that soon led to, uh, I can't read that here, but soon led to speculative bubbles and crashes throughout um, London uh, once people start to get on on the whole gambling, basically, is what we're talking about. Um, Capitalism is very much about gambling or speculation. So next slide. So there's also deep connections between capitalism, colonialism, and modernity, what I call modernity. So modernity for me is about... Um, our society that's foundational on these oppressive, ossified hierarchies. So hierarchies that are neither chosen by us or significantly modifiable through established political processes. So hierarchies that we don't control. Nobody does. They're just there. They're enduring. And these are in the form of intergenerational debt, property, private property, uh, inherited over generations and institutions of the state and the actual state itself. And obviously these things relate closely to capitalism, uh, because um, capitalism is about debt, essentially, and the accumulation of um, capital and its corollary, which is debt, uh, private property, deeply enmeshed in capitalism. And institutions and nation states are those, as we saw in some of the definitions, the more um, um, left-wing definitions of capitalism, they prop up capitalism. You can't have capitalism without violent enforcement of the, of the order of the of the order that we have now and that's through institutions like the police the police were created to keep the working class in line that's literally why they exist uh, and nation states so um yeah that's what i'm talking about there: legal violence threat of starvation homeless alienation. is really just about you know we're dependent on capitalism and the state because we don't have access to our own uh, means of significant means of production to um, sustain our lives OK, next slide. I think we're back to Annie.
2: Um, if, if you want to talk to any of it. Um, yeah, I
1: can talk to it if you want.
2: Yeah, yeah, go for it.
1: So neoliberalism came about in the 1970s, mostly through uh, work of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Um, it's just an intensification of capitalism that was already in existence. But... It, it sort of re- released a lot of restraints on capitalism in terms of wealth accumulation um, created the finance financialization of capital, uh, which led to the massive um, stock markets and speculative industries, which now dwarf the real economy. So the virtual economy of financialization is many, many times bigger than the real economy. That's where a lot of the damage is, is done these days in terms of wealth accumulation. Um it also co-opted the salary class into owning shares, so that's when people started to own shares and those sort of things. And the um, money was um, delinked from from gold at that time as well, which also allowed for um, vastly increases number of um, vast increases in wealth because you couldn't it wasn't no longer pegged to anything real. It's all virtual, you know. financialization is virtual. Um, government started to be co-opted very deeply into capitalism at that time. And they're very much in mess. You know, the whole free market economy is a joke because we know that the governments just bail out um, too big to fail bailouts of everybody that's important in terms of owner class, but not anyone of us who lose money in the increasing number of um, crashes. That is the that is the nature of disaster capitalism. Yeah. So an important point here that I want to emphasize is that. Um, people don't sign, even now, even in, just in the last 50 years, people don't sign on willingly to these things. So after the 1960s decolonial movement, where a lot of countries around the world shrugged off the colonial powers and said, we're independent now, they were doing their own thing. They were going their own way. They weren't interested in capitalism in particular. But then we had this, what we called call the structural adjustments, where people were coerced or forced or convinced to take out loans um, to build infrastructure, and then suddenly all the interest rates went up through the roof, and um, these countries in the global south are still stuck with these massive uh, debts. So the debt, the third world debt, is huge, and um, the threat of the global north not paying off your debt, oh, we'll let you, you know, have a bit less or have a better payment plan if you do this. And what this is is neoliberalism. So it was forced on people in that sense and people are still paying off. Some of the loans that people had to pay off were ridiculous things like uh, when the French left Madagascar. Oh, you owe us $3.2 billion for all the things we built while we were there. You know, your country's invaded, completely fucked over, and then you're given the bill for that. That's what happened. Now we have green capitalism, which, of course, is meant to be, um, you know, solar, alternative energy this idea that technology can save us, but we can still make money out of saving the world
2: at the same time. Let's talk. Should we talk about it? Awesome. Um, yeah, let me try and...
1: Or should stop. we go to a couple more slides?
2: Stop this thing. Um, yeah, and I'm just... I am aware that, yeah, I think we will keep going probably um, closer to like four Um with, yeah, because there's still another discussion and stuff. until oh, till five. Thanks, Raj. <laughs> My sense of time is lost. Um, but, yeah, if people do have to leave early, because I think we advertise the time to be shorter, then please feel free to and we'll send through everything and we would love your feedback as well. Um, so, yeah, Yin, did you want to do... Should we do another breakout room? Why not? Um or does anyone have anything to add? Quick um, question, got a question mm-hmm.
1: about definitions. Um, can you talk a bit more about what neoliberalism actually is? I'm not, I always use the term, and I'm not really sure what it actually means. Like, and how how is it different from classical liberalism, or is it just a modern or current version of classical liberalism?
2: Oh, I can have a go, and then you, you can add. Um, yeah, so basically it is, it is called that because pre like the world war one, the economy was much more kind of free with less government intervention. Um, and it was kind of more globalized. Um, yeah. And so, and what kind of happened with the world wars and the depression, um, that a lot of the governments and even conservative people were kind of like, holy shit, (laughs) we can't just allow capitalism's bust and boom. Um, So we need to kind of, yeah, they created, yeah, sometimes called welfare capitalism. Um, And so that worked for quite a while. I mean, it worked for a lot of people in the West. It obviously didn't work for everyone. Um, And it created a lot of, um, yeah, economic growth and all of that sort of stuff. But then, yeah, it 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 just couldn't last, and so to me, neo-liberalism li, li, is just literally re-putting in those um, like it's deregulating, taking away a lot of the controls, and then it, it it it's quite different to the original economic liberal ideas because of the technology and the finance. Like it's especially different because of the financialization. and then all of a sudden, instead of you know stuff, actual useful stuff being created. Um, now it's just financial things that, you know, don't even actually help mm. anyone. Um, but yeah, it, it is important to remember that it is just a certain era in capitalism, but I think I would argue, and probably a lot of people would argue that it's inevitable. Like if you've got a system that's based off private profit and competition, and you're trying to have a democratic government within that, then inevitably the, those with the money are going to wear down the government until they give those with the money the power. Um, so I, yeah, and I think it's a really good argument to have with people because some people say, no, we can control capitalism with the state. But to me, neoliberalism is the example that we can't actually do that.
3: Could I comment on this?
2: Sure. Looks like we're going to have an old group discussion.
4: Can I just do an editorial? I just thought, given that we were scheduled to finish, if people are are busting to go and have something busting to say, can they go first? Yep.
1: Great.
2: Great. Great. Nice. Um... Cool. Oh, yeah. So maybe... Oh, Andrew, do you need to go or are you going to stick around for the
5: next half hour? Yeah, I was thinking to go, but okay, um, cool. go for I, mean, right, I was sort of, of going to make a, a comment um, and um, I don't know, call for discussion on it, but I'm not going to be able to hang around for discussion, which is a, a pity, but I'll see how long. For me, it's just I'm, I'm pressed for time. I don't have a different appointment. Um, but uh, look, I, I mean, the... So, Thanks, everyone who spoke. I think it was great and gave a really good um, presentation between you of, of you know, the current thought on what capitalism is and, and so on. Um, and I wouldn't take issue with any anything that anyone has said. But I, I've got, a, I guess, doubts and questions in a couple of areas. And the first is how good is capitalism and our understandings of it um, how useful is it how good is, is it as a description of the way the world is at the moment? And and that's something I'd sort of like to talk about with respect to um, so-called developing countries, um, the ne- neocolonial states, the global south, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, the, and then the, the second thing, and look, I might just leave this out because, like I say, I can't hang, hang around, is um, how useful... Is um, how useful are these concepts and the, the description of capitalism um, in terms of the change that we want to make. Um, so I might just leave. But but for me, the the, the thing that I I, I um I guess have a lot of difficulties with the way that Western political economic theory and description of capitalism have been applied to places like the Philippines. And I'll talk. I use that because that's the place I know the most about. Um, and so, it's the, um, earlier on the and the description of a tra- trajectory, a, a political development pr- trajectory that goes through feudalism and ends up being monopoly capitalism and whatever else. Um, those ideas and theories were applied to o- other countries, um, and um, yeah, you know, my I guess my gut reaction is, is that. It, it, it's where you take a, a Western uh, theory applied to something like the Philippines, and then come to the conclusion that this this place is backward, um, that it's in native development, um, mm. uh, is, is problematic. Uh, and then um, it's more uh, even more than that, um, because you take this Western economic theory and and you look at a totally different society. Um, you look at it through that analytical lens, you don't really see the truth of what's going on in that place. That's been my observation. And so you find there are gaps um, and these are explained away in all sorts of different ways, um, but ways that typically find um, that place uh, wanting and and needing to change in a way that makes it more like um, the West and, and ways that fit with... Western political theory. So, it really, the reality of, of culture, society, economics, whatever in those places is, is obscured. And, and I think that's a, a, a really big problem in terms of um, you know, empowerment, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's, that's I guess, what I want to raise as something to discuss.
2: Cool. Thanks for that, Andrew. I think we'll chuck Devon. And then, yeah, people want to put their hand up um, but also Noon and Yin, feel free to jump in. We can facilitate this together. Go Vaughan.
3: Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, Yeah, Andrew, in terms of um, various different ways of criticising capitalism, obviously this is a 101 and Anissa, Yin and Noons, you've done a great job, I think. Thank you. But um, not all Marxist or anarchist or even Indigenous critiques of capitalism necessarily share this idea of linear progress um, or that maybe things weren't, or they noticed that things were challenged at all times in all different forms of society, whether they were feudal or not. Um, you know, So there's always been resistance and there always probably will be regardless of how capitalism restructures itself. Um, around the question of, I guess, the rise of capitalism, a lot of its restructuring and why it's come about has been because of the failed efforts of struggle in earlier cycles. So, you know, there was a some would argue, like Federici, that even in the feudal period, we nearly there was movements that nearly went beyond or towards communism back then. Um, the factory form was contested from day one. The push off the land was contested from day one by both Indigenous people and peasantry and people who had their lands in common. When we look at neoliberalism, there's a tendency to kind of, and um, you know, Yin's comments are really good in there about what it means, um, worth looking at, but... Part of it is that we had a period of capitalism earlier to that. It was coming up against its limits. Workers were becoming effective in challenging it, as were housewives, peasantry and other organisations. So neoliberalism was an attempt to restructure, to weaken the efforts of the working class to push through. I think that we understate our strength, even if it's, it might be unions, it might be just people slowing down or refusing or people bunking off on the dole, or it might be political parties or larger organisations. These things are what forces capitalism to restructure itself. It's not purely a top-down strategy from the managers of capital. Um, Very quickly, on the question of class, it's absolutely essential, I think, in understanding capitalism. But if you leave it there and don't delve deeper into how capitalism affects every interaction that we have, either subconsciously or consciously, you end up arguing over how to redistribute the spoils of capitalism. What do you do properly with that surplus labour? Then you do things like create a state to redistribute it. And then you still have the problem of treating the earth like a thing that is to be exploited and extracted from. So the question of how we commodify everything and make everything something that can be counted through this abstraction called money and commodities is the central challenge. Because if you just reduce your anti-capitalism to fighting within getting a bigger share of the pie, then you don't overcome it and you reproduce the system. So you need to go further than just a class analysis. Um, Robert Kurz is my favorite writer on this topic at the moment. I put it in the um, chat enough for me.
0: Sorry, if I jump in there. That was really great, Vaughan. Thank you. Um, And yeah, I think that's a really good point about class being an important analytic tool, but not being enough. um, And uh, another book or theorist that I would like to point people towards is Mark Fisher, who's very sort of in vogue at the moment with a book called Capitalist Realism. And he argues that there are these two fundamental things that capital will never be able to effectively manage, which are bureaucracy and mental illness. Um, and so uh, he's got a whole book where he argues for this position, but I find that quite convincing and, and sort of inspiring that maybe the people like me who's suffering from existing in this world can band together along that like front um regardless of like what our income is or whatever um so i I think that it's definitely worth looking at different ways to organize against capital it's not the orthodox marxist view whatever
2: If no one's really excited to jump in, maybe we'll go through our last couple of slides on alternatives. Uh, Yeah, yeah, please.
6: I I was just hesitant, but given that no one is um, keen to say anything, I just wanted to add, I did economics and business as my first degree a long time ago. So a lot of this stuff I was taught... um, like it was the right way to live in society. Uh, And I came from the right, far right even, and now I'm here. Uh, And one of the things that helped me in this process was that I had a chat with someone that had experience in the New York Stock Exchange. And I was talking to him how I wanted to go to the Stock Exchange because I believed in the free market. Because I thought that the free market, and this is adding on to the definition of free market that people had before and, and, Anyway, the free market as it is taught to students and to the vast majority of the world is free agents that go and buy and sell and the uh, invisible hand of the market automatically, a feature of the free market, sets the price of the interaction and that is the free market. And I thought that was great and everyone thinks that's pretty great. But when I said this to the stock exchange expert person, he said, listen, no. The free market, the financial st- stock exchange free market is not free because, and this is an argument that I, I'm just hoping to give people to keep in mind when they're having conversations to break down those myths of the freedom of the market is that corporations and very um, wealthy, powerful people can hire very smart, techy people to write code, to take advantages of very small but very fast transactions in the market, which leaves very small individuals that want to go and try their luck in the market, they leave them out of the transactions. So on top of how the free market has to do with the government and all those things, the free market is very not free because technology, and this is related to neoliberalism, we didn't have this technology before, now we do. Technology now makes the market very not free, because it takes away the opportunity for agents to actually make those decisions that would make the market actually free and fluid, or um, I forget the term, but anyway, with no, um, you know, with with a lubrication free market cannot exist anymore. Anyway, I just wanted to add that for people. Mm.
2: Thanks, Andy. Um, Raj, you've got your hand up. But, and, and Kelly, were you going to say something and then we'll, we'll, we'll go to Raj? You go, Kelly.
7: No, I just had one question. If we're done with the people that have to leave. So. Yeah, I think so. Go for it. Okay, so I'm sorry. I, I'm not a literate, That as literate as everyone else seems to be. But So just from the perspective of little me, everyday person, um, my question is, in capitalism, I feel most powerful as a consumer, um, nonviolent type. <laughs> so um, I was wondering how much I should invest my efforts into this power because, uh, like, wh- what do you all see as a potential for change that consumers can lead? And by consumers, of course, I'm focusing on the ones that want change in our relationship with nature and each other. And like, how much or how little positive change can things like what we purchase and what we tell companies about our preference for products and services and things like that? How much or how little positive change can that influence? And it will Will it? Could it possibly be enough change? Fast enough change? Positive enough change? Do you know what I mean? Like, is is that a clear path? the transition just to balance a bit the savagery of the capitalism and industrialization, colonialism and all
1: that? Yeah, I mean, I have a view on that. It's not particularly orthodox. But my view is that um, consuming is a very important part of the story and ethical life choices, including consumption, can make a huge difference. Obviously, it'll just lead to another crisis that capitalism will try and fix. And, and we, are, we are expected to consume in profligate, um, unthinking, unethical ways. And we are made to do so through brainwashing of, in various forms, including media. But if we choose not to do that, I mean, look, the reality is that in the system we have, you know, the um, 50 biggest companies that are responsible for 70% of global greenhouse emissions They sell stuff. If you don't buy that stuff, if nobody bought their stuff for a week, that's it, they're done. That's the reality.
7: Are those companies involved with energy by any chance?
1: Yes, usually oil.
7: And we have an addiction to energy in some countries, so how on earth do we get out of that?
1: I never said it would be easy, but it's theoretically possible.
7: Like sleep earlier?
0: (laughs) I think
4: Roger had a hand up.
2: Yeah, but do, you, do you want to answer this or do you want to go to something else? Uh, yeah, it was sort
4: of something else. I, I thought someone was leaving, so I was waiting in just oh. uh, yeah.
0: Um, I, From my point of view, I think ethical consumption is important, but it's also important to see what it can and can't achieve. And I, I think, um, for example, in the makeup industry, there's really good evidence that the makeup consumers are very, like, ethical Group of people i imagine because they tend to be largely women but that's uh, i'm not sure about that um but uh over the last like decade or two the uh, like ethical production of makeup has just completely expanded massively and it's becoming the industry standard and so i think uh, and so they're no longer testing on animals and all these other things and so i think there are absolutely things that organized consumption can achieve but it's never going to like
5: deconstruct capitalism would
0: be my guess. But I mean, who knows? We don't know how capitalism's gonna end, so,
2: yeah. Um, I'll just quickly add something and then we'll talk to you, Rog. And thanks, Kelly, so much. Like, I think, yeah, those sort of questions of what we should make that this space for. So if you do have questions like that, please, please, please speak up. Because I know, I, I know that me as a nerd, I can get carried away with all sorts of stuff and we've got to remember to bring it back because um, we're here at Capitalism 101. Um, I think for me, it depends how we define ethical consumption because that's been a tool for people to convince us to, bu- to buy more stuff. So if we're talking about ethical consumption as in buying less, buying locally, you know, understanding where our products come from, um, then to me that sort of ethical consumption is really, really important um, while not shaming others who might not be in a position to be able to kind of um, do that. But if it's ethical consumption in terms of like, you know um just buying stuff with nice stuff on on the tags and i think that's a way that capitalism is co-opting us to keep destroying like at my uni they used to have this fair trade market where they gave all this free fair trade stuff away and I, after a while i realized this is such crap capitalist because it's just it's more stuff like it doesn't matter if it's made it doesn't matter if, if you've got a keep cup it's still destroying the planet like it's better <laughs> than takeaway cups, but what ethical consumption can do is just make us feel better, so we keep consuming. So we've got to be really careful to not get in that trap. Um, rog, do you want to go? Yeah,
4: okay.
5: If yeah, We're done with that bit. Um, well, we're not done with it, but for now. Yeah, um,
4: I, yeah, there's a lot to say on that last question. I, 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 yeah, I think The idea in general of like multiple strategies, um, where we best put our energy, where different people, where they're complementary strategies, but I think, yeah, where we divert our energy into things like ethical production, whether we can reclaim our ability to produce and distribute goods as well as as models, but I think we need larger politics, sort of I think in the way Noon was kind of implying. Um, just, Just my general thought was about today in relation for the for the hard cause that are still left or the um uh was um yeah in, in this sort of the marxist stuff and, and 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 around it and alternatives there's a there's a real theoretical language whole sets of words and ways of thinking and talking are created it's sort of like this priestly language like theology you know that and that um and it is useful but it's also a problem at the same time and um, that, we can ex- that we can understand this in, in the languages that people have. Um, and just on the theology, there's this sort of idea that you can also prophesize if you have the right language, the right words, the right theory, the right understanding. And, you, you know, it gives people this status. And you can, who can be the next Lenin because they've got the theory and the fancy words and impress everybody else or bamboozle everybody else. and um, I, Yeah, anyway, but I, I, I've appreciated all of this as well. So thanks. Um, cheers.
0: Yeah, uh, 100%. Yeah, I'm I'm a real nerd about it, and I love all of the technical language, but it's so inaccessible and mostly not necessary and mostly really far removed from people's experience, and that's, like, it's a real problem. Um, I think, yeah, there's something I find very exciting about reading about, like, you know, 18th-century coal miners in Virginia, like, in the middle of a, a gunfight for their right to, like,
5: go home... Uh, at the end of the day, or, you know, that sort of thing,
0: reading Marx and be, like being familiar with it. And so I think there's, it's, I think everyone needs to read Marx or whatever, but like, um, I think there's sort of a paternalism that can be an overreaction against what you said. Like, I think hundred percent, we need to move away from the the priestly language and the theology, but then on the other side, we need to like, let people have a chance to like engage with the complex ideas, how they're presented and, and that most people can most of the time. And like, I don't know how to find the balance between those two, but it's a really worthwhile thing to try to do. Uh, yeah. Um,
2: cool. Maybe if people think of your um, next comments, um, our last two slides, I'm pretty sure have already been covered by people. Um, but can we the, see them still? Yes. I know um, that you wouldn't want to miss anything, Raj. And all the, the
4: links are going to get emailed out to us and stuff. The stuff that's been passed yep. by. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah.
2: I'll, 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 save the chat and get it all.
4: Lovely.
2: Um, thank you. but here we go. Um, because just it's so important to talk about alternatives and this has already been brought up a bit. Um, But, yeah, you you want to speak to this one? And I can quickly speak to the next one.
1: Yeah, basically, as we said, um, capitalism is a natural or inevitable. uh, It emerged at a certain point in time. Uh, It could have been otherwise and it could still be otherwise in the future. And so, yeah, the story of progress, the linearity of inevitability, Um, it's just a load of bullshit, basically. And um, there's an infinite number of other ways we could be as human and more than human. And let's just move, move and do stuff and see what happens when we when we try to be otherwise.
2: Yeah. Um, And this is our kind of little exciting tidbits of what sort of alternatives are happening Um, and still could happen, and we'll send links out to these, um, but kind of some of the big ones that are thrown around of like whole societies and communities that are operating in post-capitalist, non-capitalist ways. Uh, Rojava, which is in North Syria, um, they've got something called democratic confederalism. Um, This is flexible, multicultural, anti-monopolistic and consensus-oriented ecology and feminism are central pillars. so um, it's pretty incredible what they've been building over there um, in the middle of a kind of war-torn area. Um, so highly encourage people to look that up. It's so impressive. Um, and also the Zapatistas in um, Southern Mexico in Chiapas. Um, ever since 1992, when the North America signed its free trade agreement Um, they kind of started there. They they originally tried to take over all of Mexico in a kind of Marxist-Leninist coup um, to take over the state and then kind of through a lot of discussions and they use a lot of kind of Indigenous knowledge and, yeah, anarchist-communalist ideas. They decided that, no, they just want to have their um, autonomous area and they've been keeping that going for many years. Um, And there's also things like gift economies, steady-state economies, worker and residential co-ops, um, and I'll use this as a plug on Sunday. Um, beginning with Yin, we have a whole session that will go for quite a few hours with speakers from all over the world talking about visioning alternatives, and there will also be some activities in in there, so it's not just listening. Um, and so, yeah, that starts at 11am, which Yin will kick off for us. Um, so please, please, please come along to that. Um And yeah, please give us feedback. Um, I'll send around all of the resources. I have a kind of secret, not so secret dream to create a kind of anti-capitalist economic school Um, because this needs to be talked about in a lot longer than one and a half, two hours. And so whatever feedback we get, we'll go to try and help create that. And if you want to be involved in that, let me know. Because I think it's so important for us to have the economic understanding to be able to have these conversations to show people that capitalism is not natural, it is not everywhere, and it is going to go away. And so we need to make it go away in the best way for everyone. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's my spiel. Noon or Yin, do you have anything to add? Um, Down with work.
0: Uh, I just said in the chat but listen to my podcast, Ospol Snack Snackpod. Sorry to, to shill, but yeah, know, that's what I do and we mostly talk about Australian politics, but we do have a short series on Marxist theory. So yeah, if you, yeah. If you want thanks, to... thanks for coming and listening.
1: One one more thing from me. I posted a link to my paper in the chat. Um, but if you go on YouTube, um also have a uh an hour long talk more about indigenous knowledges if you'd like to hear more about that angle.
2: Yeah. Yes, so very important. Um, Cool, well, I'm happy to stick around for as long as anyone really wants to stick around. So if people want to chat, then that's wonderful. Or go away and have a think. Um, I'll put the email address. Or if anyone has any good ideas for how to make this workshop or something longer better and especially kind of more accessible um, as a beginning thing, then please let me know. Let,
8: let us know
6: either in e- email or just say right now. Um. Yeah, um, hi. I was thinking that his uh, feedback, feedback uh, it was very interesting the fact that there are three people with what I can see different histories, experiences and perspectives contributing is pretty great. Um, I think that the presentation that Noon gave is also very interesting, probably very accurate, but it's a lot. Like it's very, I feel even though it's like a one-on-one, it might be quite basic. It might still be like a lot to consider, even if it doesn't go into a lot of detail, but it it was good. I, I do think that, maybe it's my personal way of learning, learning but
5: more discussion
6: might help new ideas um get some context and be better understood rather than listening as much but yeah other than that i thought it was pretty great thank right. you maybe, maybe also just considering that yin is here <laughs> um um Hearing more about the Aboriginalisms, I think, that someone mentioned at some point, which I actually actually had never heard before, and how compatible or how intrinsic might they be to the utopian socialism that we might envision? Like, how, how, how do those future utopias relate to each other? Anarchy, socialism, Aboriginalism, municipalism, what is the relation between them, maybe? But yeah, other than that, awesome. Thank you. Great work, all of you, and Anissa, as well. I'll get going.
0: Thanks,
2: Andy. Honestly, I was hoping for more (laughs) yen as well, but, yeah. Um, Thanks for future feedback. I'll try and slow it down
0: in the future.
2: That's good. Yeah. yeah. Mm, Well, Well, I I wonder also how we could chuck in... in. Yeah, because... Yeah. How to get people talking about those specific terms um, and, and understanding? Because I think for me, it's taken a while to understand that a lot of the left's understanding of capitalism does come from Marx. But, but, but then I, I guess the conversation of how much is this specific um,
5: theory useful
2: to what we're creating in the future? And that's probably just a really good discussion that we should have before building a. Um, one understanding capitalism course, school, whatever it's going to be. It would be good to um, maybe have someone who hasn't studied Marx to talk about capitalism in a way that is I don't know their
9: understanding of it because I haven't studied. I didn't. I did a science degree and I haven't done anything on Marx and it is a bit. I know I could just read off a bit on the. Internet, but it is a, a bit alienating, maybe, to talk about Marx, um, and I guess also linked to um, certain political um, parties in Melbourne, for example. So um, yeah, it could be alienating for some people to um, just um, yeah just be um, given information on a, a Marx perspective. So maybe it could be broken down into infographics or yeah something that just makes it. Um, especially people who, are from, who have come from into the session from other countries who might
2: um, might not, um, I don't know, understand it in a way that um, lefties in Melbourne
4: might. I um, think we've got Raj, yeah. and then we'll go to Vaughan. Yeah, thanks, Greta. If that relates to something I was thinking a bit. Uh, I think the, yeah, the Marxist thing can be like a religion. Um, it can be reductionistic. I was kind of alluding to that before, I think. But I think it's really useful
5: to understand because it is
4: partly true and significantly useful. And it's also useful to understand if you're being an anti-capitalist or something to how some other people around you think. And it's sort of this key foundation. And then, you know, yeah, to to take it other places. Um, And just, yeah, just on the mode of the lecture, yeah, I appreciated everything. I'm not a good reader, writer, person. um, So I love diagrams, pictures, even songs. I think I've got my emotional education about politics often from songs, um, sort of lefty songs. Um, I don't know that can be there can be a, a, a listening list or a singing list as well as a reading list or
2: something. But um, yeah, cheers, Tom. Awesome. Let's go, one. Yeah. No, yeah thanks,
3: thanks, Roger. I, can I largely agree. agree. Um, look, you know, in Marxist traditions, it's not all of it but um, I remember how weird it was when I first started engaging with it but what I found was really helpful was just slowly drip feeding myself some introductory stuff but then putting myself around mentors, people who are actually involved in struggle and could make sense of it in a way Um, I personally am a huge book nerd, always have been and I do think it is part of the hard work of working out how to change things is not being afraid to engage with this sometimes difficult and alienating language and learning how to make it your own. Um, I think for some people, particularly around stuff with class, and it's not my experience, is when somebody comes from a relatively privileged background, there's a lot of resistance
9: to really unpacking it. It's uncomfortable.
5: And sometimes I
3: think it's more about that discomfort it is about the alienating language. Um, yeah, um, oh, I can't read that it's too much. But then you know, I meet somebody who has genuinely lived difficult life circumstances, poverty, and my experience has been sometimes they're really, really open to it because it actually, even if it's in abstract words, it explains their lived experience.
5: So um, yeah, that was a
3: bit all over the place, but um, I guess slog on, like it's important. And no one else. You should be able to own this language for yourself
5: and rethink
3: it and make it your own. It doesn't belong in an ivory tower, it belongs to everybody. So sometimes it is a slog to work through it, but um, yeah, it makes eventually, once it starts to click, the struggle um, and what to do um, a lot clearer. And, you know, you don't <laughs> have to go back to Marx from 200 years ago. It's been rewritten, rethought, put in conversation, tried, practised and put in conversation with other theories and practises and change.
5: So you don't have to go back to the foundational text. I've never read Capital or Guggenreza or any of those. But, um, yeah, you know, there's lots of good stuff out there if you search. Thanks. Just a quick, and it's in common
3: talks.
4: I, I, there's a... This a couple of Marxism for beginners. Um, I just that was really great for me. I'm the kind of sciencey person and diagrams and stuff. Um, yeah, that was that was great for me. Okay, thank you. Yeah,
9: yeah. Thanks everyone for um, for speaking. I think it's it's yeah, really it's really good. I guess also my my comment on that is that. I guess a lot of working class class people are so busy working or looking after their families and stuff that it, it can be not accessible in that way as well. So a, a quick way of
5: um, maybe even these um, sessions are not accessible to
9: those people. So um, yeah, like a quick yeah, infographic-y type way of explaining it, I think um, could be quite good um, to get everyone on the same page right from the start maybe if, if that's the way that they learn. So.
0: Yeah, I just,
9: sorry, I think there's really good feedback, Greta, and um,
0: I think I, I started off my presentation trying to do that and then sort of forgot about it about five slides in, so that, no, I think you're 100% right, um, regardless of, like, the usefulness of the words or whatever, I think, yeah, my presentation could um, have used more of that, so I you, I appreciate you saying it, I'll try and fix that up next time.
9: Oh,
2: that's, yeah that's okay but yeah, yeah thanks, thanks everyone i think you all did did really well and i appreciate these sessions so I'm learning all
9: the time so thank you and i'll
2: see you later thanks hmm. um yeah another thought that i had oh sorry peter you 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 go oh just very quickly like just learning about struggles and like Latin America and stuff, how often they're using kind of Marxist, Leninist, the Maoist philosophy, I think is really interesting. Um, and I know people from Latin America have part of the struggle, so this is just a note for me to chat because I think it is,
9: yeah, I've always found it way too alienating and, and it felt like I could understand
2: capitalism without it. So, um, but maybe I just haven't it, understood it well enough. I don't know. There's my thought. Go Peter. <laughs> Um, I was just um, going to um, maybe ask about or talk about desire because,
8: like, it's not so, so feedback about the session so much, It's something I would want to explore more maybe even on Sundays. Um, I kind of, like, came to cap off, like, Marx marks through Deleuze and through, like, post-structural ideas and critiques of, like, stuff to do with the relationship between desire and the economy and capitalism and psychoanalysis and stuff like that. So, um, I, um like I know it was touched upon earlier, um, the stuff around, you know, capitalism shapes our interests and shapes our like ideas and thoughts and stuff like that. But it would be good to explore that a little bit more in terms of how it's not just kind of this economic system that we engage in, but it affects us deeply inside and like our very desires. And yeah, teasing that out a bit might be good too.
0: Stick if I respond. Yeah. Um that's, That's extremely, extremely cool and I love to, to get a cup of tea and for you to tell me everything about psychoanalysis because it's something I'm just starting to learn about and the intersection of, and the intersection of, of Marx yeah, and Lacan and Freud and all, and this, all this other stuff, stuff which I really know very little about. Um, there's a fabulous podcast called Why Theory, W-H-Y Theory, um, which honestly most of it goes over my head because it's very psychoanalytic. Um, but... Uh, that might be, they talk a lot about desire and capitalism. I think one, one of them were the wrote called Desire and Capitalism. Um, so anyway, that might be a good, a good direction. Yeah, I'm um, going to lose, please. please. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's have a big
1: hey, chat.
3: Hey, um, I just I wanted, wanted to add, to add that,
0: that sometimes, sometimes it really is
3: important to, to dredge, dredge through some of this theory. theory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you imagine, imagine yourself, you're in a collective, collective meeting for a large campaign and there's these words being thrown around. If you know them, you spend the time breaking it down to understand the basic Marxist-Leninist vocabulary or the Trotskyist vocabulary. You know, these are not traditions that I think lead us to good places. So knowing when they start doing the thing around transitional demands, where that leads, understanding how they talk about imperialism and what that means. So you can pick them and know when they're going to mess with your campaign and take it over is really important. That's probably for me the most driving thing. I'm like, in terms of the process or the struggle or campaign I'm involved in, um, being able to hear those words and know, okay, so these guys, are, that's where they're coming from or whoever it is. Um, That's my main drive for kind of understanding it. It's not that I want to, um, or even, well, I have things to teach, but knowing the vocabulary stops you being stuffed over. Um, Yeah, and knowing where they're going to go and why they're going to argue for particular strategies based on history and theory of their tradition.
1: I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information on the Beyond Mining podcast series, Blockade iMark, and much, much more, please visit blockadeimark.com. Thanks for listening.